Okay, good evening. Welcome back. Uh, thank, thanks for returning. Glad to be here again uh, with you. Let me open our time with prayer. Lord, we thank you for another day. We thank you for life and breath and every good thing that we have. All that we have comes from your hand and with you there is no uh, shadow nor variation due to change, but you are faithful and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Father, we pray that you'd help us to remember that as we think about challenges and, and the power of the gospel, the power of your word, and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ over all things. We pray that we would find great courage and encouragement in him. We pray that you would bless our time together this evening. May it be uh, edifying to us and, and glorifying to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin our, our time this evening, let me see if you have any uh, questions, clarification questions, uh, or otherwise from uh, last night's um, lesson. Just as, as review, we have talked about, uh, well, let me just see if you have questions first, and then I'll give a little review. Okay, very good. Uh, let me kind of pose what we've been trying to do this in, in these terms, uh, if maybe this will be helpful Um, What we're trying to do is build a bridge, if you will. And so Sunday night we started looking at our current cultural context and the dropout problem, two-thirds of young adults growing up in the church drop out after high school, one-third of that two-thirds return, usually around marriage and having children. And so we're asking what, what are the factors contributing to that? What's the cultural context in which we're living that is uh, impacting that, that trend. And so we've talked about the four, uh, those four factors. And so that's one side of the, the bridge, okay? And then last night, we, we looked at the, the gospel, the message of the gospel, and the model of Paul's ministry, that in whatever context Paul found himself, his aim was to proclaim Christ and to build mature disciples. And so we kind of framed it in terms of what do we, what is the solution to the problem of a false gospel, which the post-Christian culture, moralistic therapeutic deism, all of those can be thought of in terms of a false gospel. They're giving an alternate narrative to what the Bible says. And the solution to a false gospel is the true gospel. And yet, with the cultural context being what it is on this side of the bridge and the biblical worldview being what it is on this side of the bridge, we've got to figure out how do we connect the two, right? How do we proclaim the unchanging truths of the gospel uh, in a culture that is largely hostile to it and does not share the assumptions that that many Christians have? Uh, 60, 70, maybe more than that years ago, our... uh, you know, our culture would have shared many assumptions with the church. Would have been lots of, uh, you know, even for people who weren't Christians, they would have agreed the Bible is important, there's a God, he says what's right and what's wrong, there's such a thing as truth, and a lot of that has shifted. And so we're living in a culture that doesn't accept the same assumptions that the Bible presents us with. And so how do we build the bridge? So tonight we're going to look at uh, an historical example, an example from church history of one effort to kind of enter into a challenging cultural context with the gospel and try to uh, bridge that gap, if you will. Uh, so that's, that's the aim of, 
of tonight as we look at a lesson from church history. But first, let me read from Ecclesiastes 7. Uh, you know, Ecclesiastes is the book that says there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, that's, that's true because it's in the Bible. All the problems that we see today, uh, they're not, in many ways, they're not new. They're this, the same, same patterns that we see throughout history. Ecclesiastes also says this, Do not say, why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Uh, I say that to urge us against a form of kind of nostalgia, right? Uh, The aim of all of this is not to say, man, don't you wish we lived in the good old days when things were a lot easier and the the culture was much more Christian than it is now. If that's what you walk away with, then I've not done you uh, a good service. The Bible urges us against that kind of nostalgia and reminds us uh, that God has given us the one as well as the other. If If you grew up in a certain time period that was that you thought was wonderful, well, guess what? It was full of problems, too. <laughs> and God puts you there, and he's put you here. And so our task is not to you know, pine for some, some mythical golden age. It doesn't exist. Our task is to try to be faithful in the age where God has placed us and to remember that he's sovereign over all of it. Um, so we can learn from history without feeling like we wish we were there. We wish we were in some different age uh, period of time. Uh, so what I'd like to do tonight is, uh, as we look at this question of how has the church reached the disconnected in the past, I want to look at a particular model of ministry from a group called Young Life. Anybody have any experience with Young Life ministry? Okay, some of you. Uh, I, I was uh, in, at Winthrop University where, where James and I first met. There was a Young Life in, in York County, mostly in Rock Hill. And I went to two meetings and I sat at the back of the soundboard. And that was, my, that was the extent of my involvement in Young Life. So I was not deeply rooted in it, but I had enough understanding of what it was. Uh, I've got a PowerPoint, and I'm hoping that my computer battery will not die on us. Uh, my plug decided to stop working right after I got here. So it will go as long as it goes, or, or we'll use it as long as it, it lasts. Uh, okay, let's talk about the, the ministry of Young Life. Let me first give us a little bit of historical context, because, you know, nothing happens out of the blue. Nothing happens uh, in a historical vacuum. So a little bit of historical context from uh, the beginning of Young Life, or really the beginning of the parachurch ministry. In, In the middle of the 20th century, in the early middle of the 20th century, you had... Uh, kind of this growing vacuum of religious instruction for young people uh, during that time. Prior to this, there had been several movements aimed at reaching young people uh, with with the Bible, with the good news of Jesus. So you can think about the, the Sunday school movement in the late 1700s, Robert Rakes in England. I don't know if you know that that's when Sunday school started, but that's, that's, it didn't start in the New Testament. It started in the 1780s. Uh, that model of kind of teaching young children the Bible started with Robert Rakes in England, reaching out to children who were working in kind of the Industrial Revolution in England. They, they weren't going to school. They weren't being taught to read. And so he had a Sunday school because they didn't work on Sunday. So he could teach them how to read and did that using the Bible. 
that model of Sunday school kind of comes, comes across the pond, so to speak, and uh, gets widely adopted, obviously, by the American church as just kind of the norm, right? So most churches today have Sunday school. We all think it's weird if they don't have a Sunday school, and yet it's somewhat of a recent phenomenon. But that was one, one aim at reaching young people. There was another group called the Society of Christian Endeavor. How about that for a catchy uh, name for a youth group? This started in Maine uh, by a guy named Francis Clark. He was a congregational minister in Maine and saw kind of young people just drifting. This is uh, kind of post-Civil War New England. And he started this group called the Society of Christian Endeavor. It just became known as Christian Endeavor uh, much later. And, and the, the goal of this was, again, reach young people, and it was a broad range of young people. So when we think youth, we think middle and high school, right? When, when they talked about youth in the late 19th, early 20th century, it could mean anywhere from 12 to 32 years old. <laughs> and I don't know why, that's just kind of what it was. But these societies of Christian endeavor kind of spread all over the U.S., and most denominational uh, agencies that were kind of aimed at Christian education for youth adopted Christian Endeavor as kind of their model. So uh, mainline Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, um, Congregationalists, of course, which is where it started. All of them, their model for reaching young people was based on Christian Endeavor. By about the middle of the 20th century, these groups start to drop off. And involvement in these groups declines rapidly. Anybody think of significant events around the middle of the 20th century that might have contributed to that? World War II and the other thing that was going on that World War II kind of helped to solve. Great Depression. Great Depression, right? So you have, um, hey, sorry you can't spend time in your youth group. You've got to go work because... We need food and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there was lots of societal things contributing to this decline. Um, but there's, there's a vacuum, a vacuum in religious outreach. Not only that, but you have this increased age segmentation in society. So families are moving from rural areas into urban areas. So no longer kind of a, a farm agricultural model where, hey, if, if you got feet and hands and you can work, you're going to work for the family and you're needed uh, at home to help with that. Now you have families moving into the cities and there's urbanization. Children are no longer needed to kind of help provide for the family income. And so there's this age segmentation where children aren't going to work. They're not working on the farm. They're living in cities. Parents are going to work uh, and, and able to provide for their children in that way. So there's this increased age segment segmentation. And some of that is, um, uh, produces this new stage of life called adolescence. Anybody know what it is? heard that? Obviously, everybody's been through adolescence. Well, this was a new term. Early 20th century is coined by a guy named Stanley Hall. Uh, I'm not related to him, but same last name. Uh, he coined this, this term adolescence to kind of describe this new period of life between childhood and adulthood. Because prior to that, there wasn't any like transitional period. You were a child, and then you were an adult. If you think about you know reading history, and you read about uh, some of these these men who were presidents or uh, you know other types of dignitaries, and they went to college when they were fourteen or sixteen. What in the world? That's so weird. Well, that was it. There was no kind of transitional period between childhood and adulthood. Things happened when you were a lot younger because kind of adulthood happened 
earlier. In the early 20th century, you have this kind of new stage of life called adolescence because children aren't growing up quite as fast as they, as they used to. Add to that um, mandatory public schooling, and now children are no longer needed at the home for uh, you know, income and so forth. There's mandatory public schooling from you know, kind of federal mandates and so forth. Obviously, that's not always been the case, uh, but that was somewhat new in the 20th century. Uh, and then a third kind of factor in this age segmentation is you begin to have this new group, this new people group, and a new mission field. Teenagers at the public high school. This is, this is kind of a new thing in early 20th century where there, there, be, there is this new youth culture. So for the first time, there's a demographic of teenagers who they're not required to work for their families. They, uh, they have free time. And they have interest and desires, and it's a marketable demographic. And so things start being developed and sold to kind of meet youth culture among this, uh, this group called teenagers who occupy uh, the high school, the public high schools. So there's age segmentation. Another way to think about this is this religious vacuum, this vacuum of religious instruction Formerly, kind of generally speaking, you had three institutions that were all kind of unified in terms of religious instruction of young people. The church, the family, and the school. Okay? All of that changes uh, drastically in the beginning of, of the 20th century where their youth and younger people are segmented out from their families, they're put in schools, Schools uh, in various places are not allowed to have religious instruction that's limited to the Bible. If, you know, if you're going to do it, it's got to be all, or some just don't allow it at all. There's all these court cases related to that. Uh, and then the church is kind of disconnected from family and school as well. So this kind of triple threat uh, that used to have a unified front is no longer there. So there's a vacuum of religious instruction. There's age segmentation. And then there's, out of that comes this new movement called evangelicalism. Um, think Billy Graham, right? The evangelical movement. There's, there's a whole kind of history behind that that we don't need to get into. Um, but let, me, let me see if i got a picture here. Oh yeah, there you go. There's Billy Graham at uh, Chicagoland Youth for Christ um, rally. Billy Graham uh, was the first full-time evangelist for the Youth for Christ Organization, which was a parachurch ministry, a ministry outside of the church that rose up in the 1940s, 42, 43, around that same time, uh, in order to reach this unreached people group, largely unreached people group of teenagers occupying the public high schools. There's this disconnect among young people from, from the church. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it's just, It's a similar context to much of what we see going on uh, generally in the world today or in America today. So these groups rose up to try to um, reach young people in a way that would kind of get their attention. So Youth for Christ, for example, their motto was geared to the times but anchored to the rock. Geared to the times. They made direct appeals to youth culture. Okay, so 
They used the popular medium of the day, which would have been the radio. But they didn't just use the radio, they mimicked the radio shows that were popular among teenagers. Highly produced, um, timed to a T, uh, very talented jazz musicians, you know, poppy music, things that would appeal to teenagers. They all incorporated into these Christian shows uh, on, on the radio or in their rallies, these kind of mass evangelistic rallies, in order to appeal to this, this demographic of, of teenagers. So geared to the times, but anchored to the rock. You know, kind of get them in and then give them Jesus, right? Appeal to them on their own terms and then give them Christ in a way that they can understand. Uh, bridging the gap, okay? So Youth for Christ, there you have, have Billy Graham. Has anybody been to the Billy Graham Library in Charlotte? Okay, you've probably seen this picture. One of the first rooms you go into is from the Billy, the Chicagoland Youth for Christ rally. It's kind of like a mock setup of that. Yes? We grew up with Billy Graham. Will you remind our folks what church Billy Graham grew up in? Oh, yeah. Billy Graham grew up in the ARP, Chalmers, Chalmers Memorial ARP, uh, just outside of, well, I guess it's in Charlotte, isn't it? Uh, it is now. It is now. Okay. Yeah. So a real Presbyterian ARP. Okay. Uh, So there's just one example of one of these groups that came up. But let's talk a little bit about Jim Rayburn and the founding of Young Life. The reason we need to talk about Jim Rayburn, who founded Young Life, is his story, his personality, uh, shaped the founding of this organization in 1941, 42, and he has continued to have a dominant influence over the, the ministry itself, which is unusual for kind of one individual to have such a massive Impact, but if you've had any involvement with Young Life, you know even today, 80 years later, they all 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 the Young Life workers they quote Jim Raver because he was so uh, influential and and he was the guy who started it. So there you have Jim Raver, the the cover of his uh, his diaries, which I've read. They're quite interesting. I mean, they're edifying at, at some points. Uh, I don't. I mean, you may not be interested in reading other people's diaries, but it was, it was interesting uh, to read. So Jim Rayburn is born into a uh, Presbyterian fundamentalist family uh, 19, you know, before the 1920s, I believe. I can't remember exactly when he was born. Um, but he's born into this Presbyterian fundamentalist family. His father was a Presbyterian minister, um, kind of fire and brimstone. Uh, as I said last night, don't, don't dance, don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. That kind of mentality of what the Christian life ought to look like, a very kind of strict... Um, legalistic framework for, for how you follow Jesus. And so Rayburn grew up in that, and eventually he was called to serve with the, the Presbyterian Board for Home Missions, in this mainline Presbyterian church. He went to New Mexico and Arizona to do kind of um, frontier missions work in the 1930s in New Mexico and Arizona. There's not a whole lot out there. And so he, he had a real heart for children. He had a real heart for youth. And, and wanted to reach them for Christ. And so he developed a lot of relationship-building uh, skills working in these churches in New Mexico and Arizona, trying to reach out to kids who weren't connected to the church. So they'd go camping, they'd have evangelistic rallies. He said it at one in his diary, he talks about one of these rallies, just to give you a flavor of his um, kind of legalism, said that, that at one of the rallies where he was preaching... He felt pretty good about it because he had convinced at least one girl to stop dancing, you know, just as a, as a practice. 
And for him, that was kind of what he equated with the gospel. What's the gospel all about? It's about things you don't do. Right? It's about keeping the rules. And so that was kind of his view of the Christian life. And as a result, he was, he was you know, kind of uptight and sad because he really, didn't, really hadn't grasped the grace of God in a way that gave him freedom. He was living by a set of rules as though that was uh, the main thing. Well, he comes across a book by a guy named Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who at that time was teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, you can buy Schaefer's books today. He's fairly popular. He wrote a book called He That Is Spiritual, which I wouldn't recommend, but this is uh, Jim Rayburn found this book, and, and he started to read this book, and it revolutionized his life. And, and part of what he found in the book was freedom in Jesus. He read that, that Jesus had done everything necessary for his salvation, his, his life of righteousness, his atoning death on the cross, that all of that was all that was needed uh, for redemption. And, and so he got the message that it wasn't about him keeping rules to be redeemed, it was about what Jesus had done. And in the book, Schaefer talks about how there's actually joy in the Christian life that comes from knowing that Jesus has done it all for you. And so this kind of radically changes Rayburn's approach to the Christian life. He has a new appreciation of grace. And this idea of the Christian life being fun comes to dominate his view of everything. And that's going to come into play when he begins the Young Life ministry. He enrolls as a result of reading this book. He goes to Dallas Theological Seminary. He had not been to seminary yet, but he was an ordained Presbyterian missionary. So he goes to seminary, studies under Schaefer, and while he's there, he gets a job at the First Presbyterian Church in Gainesville, Texas, which is some short distance from Dallas. Uh, and there's a pastor there named Clyde Kennedy, and, and Clyde had, you know, he had children coming to the church. He had youth at the church. He hires Jim to be like the choir director and a part-time youth worker while he's in seminary at Dallas, uh, theological seminary. And he, he tells Jim, uh, he says, don't worry about the youth who are at the church. They're fine. We'll take care of them. I want you to reach the kids who are not coming to church. And so he says this famous line, he says, the center of your widespread parish will be the local high school. Figure out how to reach the kids who aren't going to come to the church. Kind of a decentralized approach. Go to them. Figure it out. Uh, so Rayburn does this. He, um, he begins to go to the local high school. He begins to spend time uh, with these students, just getting to know them, hanging out at football games, hanging out at other sporting events, introducing himself, trying to get Bible studies started. Some of this probably sounds quite familiar because the things that he did end up becoming kind of what we know as modern youth ministry by and large. Uh, as, as he begins to do this kind of mission outreach work in the public high school in Gainesville, uh, one thing leads to another, and he starts what's, what's called originally the Young Life Campaign. Let's see what I've got here next. Here you have a picture of, um, he starts these things called club meetings. And he said the rule for the club meeting was don't have it at the school, because only the kids who like to hang out at school, uh, you know, he had, I think he called them nerds or something. I don't know. <laughs> he was not very kind about it. He said, you, you don't want those kids to be the only ones who come to your club. You want to reach the popular kids. So don't have it at school. Have it at a place where the popular kids will come. That's a problematic approach in some ways, but that was what he did. 
So he started having these club meetings outside of school, sometimes in people's homes. In Colorado Springs, the group was so big that the only space that would uh, fit them was a funeral home. <laughs> so he had, you know, 400 kids inside this funeral home all sitting on the floor listening to Jim Rayburn talk about Jesus. And if, you know, the funeral directors were on call, if they had to do something, they had to kind of scurry them out of the funeral home. But this was the popularity that happened. As he went and invested in these kids, got to know them, invited them to these club meetings, uh, his, his kind of approach was to um, make it fun. Get to know these kids, make it fun, and tell them about Jesus. Pretty simple formula. So it's here he says... Young Life is a group of people committed to the idea of winning a hearing with kids for the greatest story ever told. This is an important concept for him of winning the right to be heard. He felt like part of what was missing in the church was this relational investment from adults to teenagers. That that some of that was just taken for granted and and he saw that it wasn't producing the fruit that we ought to be hoping for. So he, he thought, well, let's just go and invest in relationships with these kids at the high school. Let's find out who they are. Find out what's going on in their lives. Find out the kind of burdens that they bear. Find out what gives them joy. Find out what weighs heavy on their hearts. Let's go and love these kids for the sake of winning the right to be heard. Because if they trust you... Because you have shown love to them, you have shown interest in them, you've developed a relationship with them. If they trust you, then they will listen to you when you talk to them about Jesus. And so this was kind of the whole, the whole model is built on that basic idea of investing in relationships. So they'd have these club meetings, they'd go to where the kids are, they'd go to the high school, earn the right to be heard, invite them to club meetings... They called it relational or sometimes incarnational ministry, uh, kind of the idea of I'm, I'm going to be, uh, I'm, going, I'm going to demonstrate Jesus to you kind of in my own flesh, incarnational in that sense. But it was just relationships, investing in kids, telling them about Jesus. They described the club meetings as a Christian meeting for non-Christian kids. So if any of you have been to a Young Life club meeting uh, nowadays, they sing a lot of songs at the beginning, and they're all pop songs. Um, that's becoming probably a little more problematic uh, these days. There's probably not many pop songs that you can sing uh, without turning red in the face because of the content of it. So I don't really know what they sing today at Young Life Club meetings. I'm sure there's something. But they, they, they deliberately make it not uncomfortable for non-Christians. Right? Trying to tear down barriers trying to, to tear down walls that they might have built up to the idea of being a Christian or to the idea of the church. Um, Rayburn felt very much like the church had failed in reaching a young generation because they were kind of just stuck. Right? You're stuck in your denominational tradition. You're stuck in the way that you've always done things. And so by establishing an agency that was not really connected to the church, a parachurch ministry, he could kind of do what he wanted. And he wasn't stuck in these traditions. Now, he ends up making his own tradition, which has its own drawbacks. But that was kind of the idea. They called the club meeting a party with a purpose. And if you go to one, it's a whole lot of fun. 
And then at the end of it, somebody, somebody tells you about Jesus and, and maybe ask you if you want to trust in Jesus. For those kids who do come to Christ through Young Life Club meetings, they have discipleship groups called campaigners, Bible study, equipping them to, to share the gospel with their friends. So they don't just kind of throw the gospel net out and then leave you hanging. They invest in those who have committed and try to help them learn how to follow Christ uh, faithfully. This is their website mission. Our mission is to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. Uh, So that that about sums up Young Life. Interestingly, Young Life becomes so successful, and there's still a wildly successful kind of youth ministry. There's some challenges to it. It's not all positive, but they've done a lot of good things. They have camps uh, like luxury camps, that you, that you go to. So I know Bon Clarkin is nice. I know Ridge Haven, our camp, is not quite as nice. But none of them compare to Young Life camps. I mean, these are like top-notch. Uh, if you were going on vacation and you had to stay at a Young Life camp, you'd be happy about it because they're, they're that nice. They've actually got one in Oregon that my niece goes to. She lives in Washington State. And it, it, the property belonged to some wacko religious cult that got, um, you know, the federal authorities arrested everybody in the cult and took, confiscated their land. And some, some donor gave money to Young Life, and Young Life bought the, you know, all these acres of property in Oregon that would have been crazy expensive. Young Life got uh, for a steal, and, and they built this huge, like, water park uh, Young Life camp out there. So they, they got camps all over the U.S., Colorado, California, uh, Windy Gap in North Carolina. Anybody been to Windy Gap, this Young Life camp? Uh, and then this, this ex-cult uh, camp in uh, Oregon, which is probably not the best way to describe the camp if you're trying to promote it. But anyway, that's what it is. So they've, um, their, their model was so successful in reaching students for Christ, reaching kids for Christ, uh, that what ends up happening over time is the local local church youth ministry programs or denominational youth ministries start saying, oh, there's something to that. And, and so the, the kind of model of young life, and we haven't talked about youth for Christ, but some, somewhat similar model, ends up making its way into the church. So you can think about a lot of traditional, what we would call traditional youth group models. You know, it's a lot of hanging out. You know, relationships. You're you're trying to make it fun. You got some games. You got some icebreakers. Maybe you sing some songs that everybody knows, and then you kind of wind it down to a gospel message. I'm not saying necessarily that's how it works at Bethel, but in general, that's kind of modern youth ministry in a nutshell. Focus on relationships, make it comfortable, make it fun, and talk to them about Jesus. That's all young life. That model kind of makes its way into the church. Uh, for better or for worse. Let's, uh, any questions about Young Life? That's just kind of history of what they did and kind of how they did it. Any questions about that before we talk about a few takeaways? What can we learn from what Young Life did? Okay, well, these will all be uh, hopefully helpful and probably obvious. Lessons to learn. Relationships matter, especially intergenerational relationships. I, I, I want to I, I want to say this, and if this is the only thing you take away from anything that we've said over the last you know tonight and the last two nights, then then it'll be worth it. Uh, young people growing up today, so think teenagers uh, and even those kind of post high school 
going into college, the, the world in which they are being shaped and formed is a confusing world. It's a confusing world. And for those of us who are older, particularly if you're a Christian, you're walking with Jesus, and you're seeking to grow in spiritual maturity, the, the context in which our young people are growing up in today ought to give you a great deal of compassion and sympathy. In many ways, uh, you know, James and I are Generation X. Right? We, you know, we didn't have everything together, obviously. Uh, our parents were baby boomers. Uh, things were not always easy for those generations, obviously, but certain things were clearer. Um, certain questions about identity, particularly gender identity, sexual identity, certain, certain issues like that were easier to discern because the culture had not flipped those categories upside down and rejected God's design for those things wholesale like it has today. So our, our, our young people are growing up in a time of significant confusion. Life choices are harder. Life pathways are not as point A to point B straight and easy. It's much more difficult in many ways, and, and we ought to have a lot of compassion and sympathy and a desire to come alongside uh, to encourage and to lead in the right way uh, toward Jesus Christ. Relationships matter, especially intergenerational ones. In a time when most age groups are separated from one another, almost institutionally, the, the mixing of generations is all the more important. Uh, not just parents with their own children, but uh, children with other adults in safe places. I mean, you've got to think through all the safety issues that come with that these days. But in general, those relationships, intergenerational relationships, matter. And they make a huge difference. You think about this. Um, or let me just give an, an illustration. Uh, we have a, a program in our church called the Buddy System. I didn't make it up. Our, our previous pastor did. And, and the basic idea is get, get an older Christian joined up with a young person in the church, hopefully like about the time that they join the church, to be a prayer buddy. Pray with them. Uh, pray for them every day during the week. And then pray with them once a week usually right after church, and then once a year we have a meal together and we encourage them to follow Jesus well. Um, those relationships are nothing spectacular. I mean, there's nothing fancy about it. Usually an older man with a, a, you know, a, a younger boy or a young man. Uh, different generations, very different kind of culturally because generations are different uh, in, in those ways. But they want, to fo- they want to follow Jesus. And they build a relationship over the course of 10, 12, 13, 14 years. Uh, and that, that impact, that discipleship, uh, week in and week out over the course of many years of watching another adult follow Jesus faithfully, knowing that there's somebody other than my parents and my grandparents who is interested in my life and interested in my spiritual life, that has profound implications. Some, some would say that what's needed in the church today is a five-to-one ratio of adults to children. For every one child, get five adults somehow connected to them, either committing to pray for them, spending time with them, volunteering with the children's ministry or the youth ministry or whatever it is. The more adults that you have connected to young people, the better. So relationships matter, especially intergenerational ones. 
Um, I, I think that's really important and, and really valuable. And the church is the one place where that ought to be the norm, right? Because we're the covenant community. One generation telling another about the great and mighty deeds of the Lord and calling the next to faith. So relationships matter. Let me say one more thing about that. Uh, consider high school students, maybe here at Bethel, or if you had another church, high school students who are about to graduate, maybe think about what can you do during that first year of college, say they're going off to college, and not, not everybody does, but say they're going off to college, what can you do as an adult, a non-parent, you're not their parent, but as an adult in the church, what could you do in that first year of their college experience to continue a relationship with them, to encourage their involvement in the local church where they are and, and at home when they, come, when they come back, to simply find out how they're doing, you know, to show up and take them out to lunch one day and just invest in their lives, not in an artificial way, but maybe as the result of an, a relationship already established prior to their, their leaving. Uh, how many of you had somebody other than your parents do that for you your first year of college? Anybody? Who, who did that for you, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, friends of my parents. Friends of your parents? Yeah. So somebody showed up, showed interest, took you to lunch, no, nothing big, but how would you say that that um, made a difference to you? Mm. Yeah. So hindsight, maybe you appreciate it. Yeah. Well, that's good that you didn't need the extra push. <laughs> Some do. Some do. Um, evangelism and discipleship go together. Uh, y'all know that. I don't have to unpack that. Um, understand the culture, but be careful not to imitate it. Young Life, their their model focused on. Uh, appealing to youth culture. Sing the pop songs. Make it fun. Make it entertaining. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with making things fun. That, that's, that's okay. Christians should be the happiest, most fun people around. You can have good, clean fun and, and have joy in the Lord at the same time. Um, so Young Life has made kind of their brand to understand the youth culture and to appeal to it. That has come back to bite them in, in some ways. So for example... Uh, if I can kind of give this quick illustration, it's not to say they did something wrong, it's just to kind of show the challenges that this brings, if you, if you understand what I mean. They have a big emphasis on belonging, okay? So if you go to a Young Life meeting, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you belong to Young Life, okay? You're part of the group. They, they have a big emphasis on belonging and not excluding, Okay? Several years ago, the local Charlotte Young Life uh, uh, chapter or or organization uh, got in some hot water in the local news because uh, some of the students who had grown up going to Young Life in high school and had gone to college and then were wanting to uh, be a part of Young Life leadership after college uh, were also, um, uh, several of the ones who were looking to do this were, were homosexuals. Young Life's a Christian organization. They had fidelity to the Bible, fidelity to sexual standards, and they had to kind of, they, they, they made a good choice. They kind of made the hard choice of saying, you can, all, all students are welcome, whether Christian or non-Christian, whether gay or straight or whatever, you can come to Young Life Club, come to Young Life Camp, 
whatever. We want you to come. You belong. But with leadership, they made the right choice of, of setting some boundaries, saying, you know, you have to, you have to be a Christian and you have to adhere to uh, you know, faithful standards of biblical sexual ethics. And the response of a lot of these students who had come back, who were homosexuals and who wanted to be involved in the leadership of Young Life was, uh, but you told us we belonged. You see, some of that cultural message of belonging and tolerance and affirmation, which was used as a bridge to bring young people to Jesus, the boundaries were not as clearly set out as they thought they were. And so then when they come back and say, you said we belonged, then they had to start making the boundaries more, more clear. And so then they make the news. And it doesn't matter how you handle that, because we're all going to have to face that issue as Christians today. It doesn't matter how you handle it. It's, it doesn't matter how kind the people in young life are. As soon as they hold on to biblical sexual ethics, they're blackballed in the public eye. It, just doesn't, it doesn't matter how you handle it you're going to get blacklisted if you maintain biblical fidelity, which, which they did. So there's, there's, a, there's a balance to be found. Understand the culture. Know how to speak to it, but don't imitate it so much that it's not clear the difference between Christian faith and the broader culture. Finally, um, very simply, pray. Uh, Jim Rayburn often says, I mean, his diaries are encouraging for this if, if only for this alone, the amount of references he makes to the time that he spent in prayer. I mean, it's amazing. And he wasn't writing these for publication. I mean, these are just his personal diary. And sometimes there's one sentence, you know, on a daily note. And so it wasn't a lengthy diary or anything. But he talks about how much he sought the Lord's help in prayer as he was beginning the work, as he was continuing in the work, as he later was being kind of kicked out of the work for various reasons. Um, he, he talked about how much he prayed and how uh, he said prayer is the work. Prayer is the work. It'd be easy to come up with some technique. You know, have a fun meeting. Make it entertaining. Have some pop songs. Um, you know, whatever. Have good snacks. Have, have some technique. Dim the lights when you start talking about Jesus. Can I have nice soft music? Does this sound familiar? Have a technique, and the technique will work, and you'll bring people to Jesus. It's not about the technique. It's not about the, the method. It's about the Holy Spirit being at work in our seeking to be faithful to what the Lord calls us to do, and, and that ought to drive us to prayer. Prayer is the work, so pray, and very simply, show genuine love for Christian, or show genuine Christian love for you. Um, if, if you do those, not to call that a technique, that's just responding faithfully to what the Bible calls us to do. Uh, if, if you as a church take on ministry to the next generation as integral to the church's mission, and you pray for that, and, and you seek ways to multiply the showing of genuine Christian love to young people, God will use that. Uh, I mean, he has, throughout history, he has used that. It's not a silver bullet. There's no, like, you know, gumball machine solution. Put in a quarter and out drops your gumball, and sometimes two. It's, it's nothing like that. It's, it's seeking God and trying to be faithful to what he does. But these are the means that he uses. Prayer, 
ministry of the word, the gospel, keeping that the main thing, and, and loving relationships that model the love of Christ. Young Life did that well. There are things that they did that are challenging that maybe they didn't do well. But they did that well, loving young people where they are. Uh, so those are things we can learn from uh, the history of the church. Don't be afraid to try something new. Try something different. Um, we'll stop there. I'll see if you have any questions before we close. We'll start, I'll start in the front, then we'll go to you in the back, sir, with the beard. Yes, yeah, so you're right. Tonight, part of, what we're, part of what we're aiming at tonight is to think, to start early. So build those relationships while they're here with adults in the church. Maintain those relationships after they leave, you know, after, after high school, during, during college. But the, part of the idea is, the hope is that by building those bridges now, by building those relationships now, uh, that that will help prevent the drop. Uh, you know, not 100%, obviously, but that is part of the idea. And we'll talk tomorrow, try to kind of wrap it up, put a little bow on it, about, okay, what do we do with that time frame after? You know, how can we as a church uh, work during those years? If there's a disconnect, you know, what do we do? I do think that, uh, uh, what's the phrase, an ounce of prevention is worth something, worth a lot? I don't know. <laughs> what is it, a pound of what? A pound of cure. Uh, so in some ways, this is an ounce of prevention. Um, it's, not the, it's not the silver bullet, as we've said, but I think that it does force us to, to think, think backwards. I mean, what's the goal? And, and then kind of how do we get there and start earlier? Because a lot of times what happens is, you know, like, like me doing some of this research, I'm like, oh, man, there's a big problem. We haven't done anything about it. <laughs> and then, and then you don't think back to, okay, what's, what's behind it? What's causing it? What are some things we can do before we get to that point to kind of help it? But, yeah, we'll, we'll talk a little bit tomorrow about, um, okay, what do we do when that's going on? Yeah, good question. Thank you. James, you have a question? Yes, I know. Crickets, um, crickets already. I haven't even answered. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. What are some things? What you know? What are some things we've done at, at the church to try to implement this? What are things that we've seen? Uh, not much because I just finished the work. So we're working on it. We're in the early stages. But I will say this: I think one of the most important things you can do is um, to come alongside parents. Uh, I think investing in 
parents who are either raising children in that you know the ounce of prevention stage, so to speak, or you know parents of young adult children, but to come along side parents to help them in those early years to think about you know your child will one day leave your home. What what is your goal for that? What would you like to see coming out of that? And how can we as a church community kind of come alongside and, and encourage that, as well as helping parents. Uh, who, who have young adult children who are maybe experiencing this, try to think about it and, and find encouragement in, in the Word of God for it and, and practical advice about you know, what to do and, and how, to, how to think about their renegotiated relationship with their young adult children. So I think starting with parents is probably a key ingredient to it. But yeah, we're just getting started trying to figure this out because we're, you know, we're like a lot of churches. That's a common phenomenon and a lot of it has to do with the um, not being like Velcro, you know, part of the strength of Velcro is there's a there's a, a hook and a loop and every hook has a loop and it's all connected and that's what makes the, the binding so so strong is every every hook is connected to a loop. And and oftentimes in the church our our youth are kind of only connected to the youth group maybe and maybe don't feel like they've been integrated into the whole church, the whole body of Christ. And so the number of loops, there may be a lot of opportunities, but there's no hooks. There's maybe one hook. And so that's, that, that bond is not very strong. And, and so part of the goal is to try to view youth in the church as members of the church. And, and all that that means as the body of Christ, of, of an integrated view of life in the body of Christ, so that hopefully at the end of the day you end up with much many more points of contact. Uh, you know, I think about the students who come home to our church if they've been away from college, and, and hopefully they've had a a positive experience growing up in our church. And when they when they come back, not only are they like coming home to their family, which is often a wonderfully comforting thing. It's not always. Uh, some, some don't want to come home. Some have you know, problems in their home. I don't know why some of you are laughing, but I'll just leave it to you to <laughs> discern all that. Um, but most people, they come in from college and it's like, this is great, mom's going to do my laundry. You know, I can like, sleep till noon or whatever. You know, it's comfortable. But many don't have that same level of like, oh, I can't wait to see the people at church. Because those, those points of contact maybe have not been been made. Now in a small church like, like Bethel or like Filbert, it's, it's both easy and hard for everybody to know each other. Right? It's, it's easy in some ways because it's a smaller group, but then it's hard also, at least for us, it's hard because you might have kind of several little cliques and, and not everybody crosses over. But the, the goal is to have many points of contact so that coming to your home church is as comfortable and joyful as coming home and familiar and encouraging to you. Uh, that may be a little naive and idealistic, but I'd like to think that it's worth a shot. <laughs> okay, good question. Thank you. We are a country church. We are on the outskirts of York, in between York and Clover. So it's still a pretty agricultural community, but close enough to town that you you can't you can't tell. And York's a pretty small town still, so it's it's uh, going from the city to the country is not as uh, sharp of a contrast as it probably used to be. I think before I you know, um, 
Uh, many years ago, it would have been a much more rural community than it is now, with fewer connections to the town. You probably didn't have anybody living in town who came to Filbert up until maybe the you know the 90s or something. Uh, 2000. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, I'd say on if, if yeah, so there's always the difference between on paper and on pew. So uh, on pew, uh, any given Sunday, we probably have between uh, with wide variation because we have some large families who, when they go on vacation, you feel it. You know, the whole church feels it. Um, you know, 20, 30 people. Uh, we, you know, about 150 average, I would say, so, give or take. We have lots of children. We have a lot of children. Very fertile families, <laughs> large fertile families. Is that okay to say? Okay, we're all friends. I've already said it. it's already been recorded. It's out there. I mean, it's, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Is what God says to you. you know, the Mormons and the Muslims are outnumbering the Christians because they have so many children. So we got some work to do. Got a whole thing about that. I'm not even going to get into. I'm just kidding. I don't have a thing about it. Okay, <laughs> let's pray before I keep talking. Lord, thank you that Jesus is a great Savior and that he loves to save people and that he loves to use uh, fragile, broken, imperfect, uh, stumbling and bumbling sinners like us to reach other people for Christ. Lord, we pray that you would use us in whatever way you please. Help us to love people for the sake of loving them, for the sake of pointing them to the one whose name is love, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help uh, us as churches, as as part of your universal church, uh, to see the next generation as a core part of our mission, of the mission that you've entrusted to us to make disciples. Give us wisdom, uh, give us joy in that, and give us a deep dependence upon you for grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.